Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Cara. It was a a big week in the world of people who think about teenagers, work with teenagers, care for teenagers, teach teenagers, all of those things because, drumroll please. Because there was a gigantic data dump. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey data was released, and we are going to do a very brief recap of what that survey is and the top headlines that came out of that survey because we're getting all sorts of questions and we are getting flooded in our own personal news feeds. I mean, literally every single email newsletter that I receive from the sort of more newsy or political ones to the health-focused ones, they've all started reporting on this data in the past 48 hours because it's it's pretty dramatic. So let's jump in to a little spark notes, the YRBS, Youth Risk Behavior Survey, what it is, what questions it asks, and why these headlines are so significant. And I will say that our newsletter this week is also focused on this survey. And if you want more information, you can subscribe to our newsletter, the link in bio. It's called The Awkward Roller Coaster. And we will point to an episode coming out in two weeks in the context of this episode. So stay tuned 
for our episode with Donna Jackson Nakazawa, the author of Girls on the Brink, which we will get to. Are we allowed to say that our newsletter just won an award? We are. Cara's so proud. That I'm so proud. Because we're, we're socialized to be pleasers and to respond to extrinsic motivation like awards and prizes and good grades and Anyways, other we people. just won an award. <laughs> and so I'm just going to say, okay. Cara's like, please don't go don't any deeper. Don't qualify our winning an award with... Um, okay, let's jump in. Would you like me to start with a super quick overview of youth risk behavior survey? Yeah. Start with the sort of the overview and then there's some very specific things that we're going to get into in more detail. Great. And just for those of you who are listening on the go and don't have access to pressing links, et cetera, a lot of this is covered in detail in the newsletter that's coming out on Friday. And you can access this information directly from there as well. And it will be summarized for you in writing. So if you like to hear things twice, once verbal, and then kind of hear it in your mind's eye when you read it, this is great for you. Okay. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey is a survey that is done by the CDC. And so if you start looking up where the sort of results can be found. They're found all over the place, but they're on the Centers for Disease Control website because that is the entity that runs this study. And they ask these questions every other year. So a little pet peeve, biannual, sometimes that means twice a year and sometimes that means every two years. In this case, it means every two years. So every two years, there's a gigantic survey that goes out And actually, there are lots of different arms of the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, but we're going to focus on the one that went out to high school students in the fall of 2021. And the benefit of collecting this data every two years is that you can compare what was answered two years prior and two years prior to that and two years prior to that. So this report that came out this week actually looks at a span of five surveys it looks at 10 years worth of data, 2011 through 2021. And this is a very significant piece of what we're going to talk about because of course the questions have to change when, you know, terminology in our social landscape changes and when issues shift and when events happen and then there are different foci that people want to start looking at and drilling down on. So Not every question that is asked in the 2021 survey has prior data that can be used to compare, which is annoying, but fine because you got to start somewhere. And so at least some of these things are being asked, but it's important to realize what they're asking. So in the youth risk behavior survey, essentially what is being assessed is everything in a teenager's life, from sex to substance use to violence, mental health, all of the physical and social or emotional indicators of wellness or even just of adolescent life are being surveyed. And 17,000 kids were asked this time, which is hard data to find, actually. Vanessa and I were like combing the report, looking for how many kids answered the question. So That is what we're pulling off of the AP News story that the CDC, I think, approved. It looks like there were 17,000 kids. That's a lot bigger than it was in 2019, which was 13,000 kids. So 
I think that's our denominator. So the top line concerning topic is not surprisingly around adolescent mental health. So these are high school students. And the mechanism for pulling this data is state by state. And it's 43 public school districts across the country. Public school districts, but they included independent schools in their survey group. So it wasn't just public school kids. It was kids who go to different kinds of schools. Go on. Sorry to interrupt. In that district. Yes, exactly. So they carved out, they're looking at the different geographical areas, but it wasn't just kids who are public schools. Public schools. Okay. So more than 40% of high school students reported feeling so sad or hopeless that they couldn't participate in usual activities for at least two weeks. That's how the question was framed. That is what we would refer to in other settings as signs of depression or as depression, but they didn't ask it that way. Right. And that's one of the things that I think everyone's trying to grapple with here is that That is true. It is a clinical descriptor of depression. But what isn't clear to me as the reader of the report, and I wonder if it wasn't clear to the teenager, is are we talking about two straight weeks? Are we talking about thinking back on the whole year? Is there a total of two weeks worth of time where you can say you felt hopeless? Don't don't get me wrong. This isn't good data. We don't like hearing this, but I think it, it is significant to think about it in those terms, because if it's a two-week stretch straight, that tells you one thing about mental health. And if it's, you know, 14 different one-day periods where a kid can look back over the course of a year, but it kind of came and went, that tells you something else about mental health. And remember, even though we're in 2023, this survey was done in 2021, and the world looks different in some ways, right? Some kids were still not at school in person. Some kids were still masking. Some kids were not doing extracurricular activities or socializing in person with friends. I mean, if our kids had been surveyed and none of our kids were surveyed, but if our kids had been surveyed, Vanessa, your kids would have been surveyed at school in person fall of 2021. And my kids would have been surveyed online virtually. And so I think that's very significant. And I don't think that they split the data. In fact, I have not seen anything about how they've parsed the data based upon whether kids were back at school or not. And I don't think that was even part of the study design. So I think, you know, let's let's just take that as a gigantic variable here. Yes. Yes. However, one thing that is important to note is that females... And kids who identify as LGBTQ plus, there's no we'll T, talk about that. there's no we'll, transgender, we'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that. that. But kids who identify as non-heterosexual or bisexual or questioning sexuality and females had significantly higher rates. So high school girls reported, 60% of them reported experiencing persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. And that number was close to 70% for LGBTQ plus students. Right. So let's let's line those numbers up. The average, so if you look at the total group, 17,000 kids, 40% of them said, yes, I had two weeks of hopelessness or deep sadness, 40% of the total. And then when you break it down by gender, it's 60% of the females. 
And when you look at LGBTQ+, it was 70%. There is no T because, and here was, I think everyone acknowledges a big miss in this survey, gender identity was not queried. So you were asked your gender. I'm not sure how that was answered by gender questioning kids. I believe that most trans kids that we know would have answered according to their gender, their transgender. So, you know, I I think there's a lot of sort of missed data there, but no doubt with the amount of feedback that the CDC is getting, this will be a question on the, the survey that will go out this fall. But it's very significant because they use the acronym LGBTQ+, which if you're not looking for the T, you almost assume it's baked in there. And then as you read the data, you might interpret it in one way. And there is no T baked in there. There is no T data that we can use. And of course, we know that being trans or gender questioning does put you at very significant risk for mental health issues. If you listen to enough of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes. Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders in all sizes, literally down to kids extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors ready-to-eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never-frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling 
better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. If you pile on top of those averages of expressing feelings of hopelessness, sadness, on top of that, when they looked at suicidal ideation, as in, as they frame it, a planning for suicide, made a suicide plan, and suicide attempts, again, females and LGBTQ plus kids were significantly above males or people in heterosexual relationships or identifying as heterosexual, where 25% of females had made a suicide plan, 40% of LGBTQ plus kids had made a suicide plan. I mean, just just stop and think. You have to just say those numbers again, Vanessa. I mean, it's well, really and stunning. One more piece of data to really make us feel worried. Almost 25% of LGBTQ plus adolescents had attempted suicide. That is one in four. So this data is grabbing headlines all over the place for very good reason. This is stunning, stunning data. You've got a survey coming to a teenager who has no vested interest in gaming the survey, who has no, right? One would argue that some underreporting 
might be here. I don't know that, you know, statistically, I, I haven't read the data closely enough to understand what the risk is there of underreporting, but I'm not sure if I was a 15 or 16 year old that I would entirely trust this random survey, right? So we're assuming that everyone is giving an honest answer. And then one quarter of the LGBTQ plus community is self-identifying as I attempted suicide. And, you know, these numbers that 40%, four out of 10, two out of five females who answered this survey said, yes, I've thought about suicide. I mean, this is, these are massive, terrifying numbers. We loved the conversation we had with Donna, who you referenced at the top of this episode, who wrote an incredible book called Girls on the Brink. And we recorded with her two days before this data dropped. Who would have known? And we can't wait to release that episode. It's coming in just a few days and we will let everyone know when it drops. But she, in that interview, talks about one third of all girls having these feelings of deep, deep sadness and hopelessness. And now, you know, we know those numbers are nearly twice as high. She talks about kids who have suicidal plans. Those numbers are significantly higher now. So this is quite terrifying. Now, it's tempting to think that females are expressing these feelings because they're just better at expressing them, right? It's tempting to say, oh, well, girls are socialized to express their emotions and that's why we're seeing higher rates. But our episode with Donna explains in exquisite detail how girls' physiology, how estrogen in their bodies and their brain construction during adolescence can actually when under certain circumstances like chronic stress can contribute to more severe mental health issues. So we're actually going to play a clip of our interview with Donna in this episode. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll have the full episode for you to listen to. So have a listen here. It can flip from this evolutionary advantage to an evolutionary disadvantage when the environment is coming in really hot, fast, and with major stressors that make one feel that they are not going to be safe as they grow up and go into this world. And then we begin to see estrogen exacerbate this damage cascade of inflammatory hormones and chemicals that over time can do all kinds of terrible things, exacerbating physical disease in the body, but also shifting the chemistry of the brain in ways that can flip on the genes for depression and anxiety and pruning the brain in ways that can lead to mental health concerns. Vanessa, I want to jump into some positive because it's very easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole of negativity. And there are lots of very elegant explanations for why we are going down a rabbit hole of negativity in many ways, as evidenced by the description that Donna gave. But let's talk about a couple of the positives from this study, because it's important to highlight those two. So as we like to say, the news is not all bad. The report really does summarize adolescent health and well-being as being overall improved. Now, I'd probably take well-being out of that sentence and I would say it's it's really a health measure. I do think we do a much better job on the front lines of physical health care with our adolescents now because 
pediatricians and gynecologists and family health doctors and nurse practitioners have embraced this notion of kids taking ownership for their health and kids having access to resources online that help them take ownership. Plus, there are things like easy STD, STI screens that are offered at routine visits that make certain health and wellness measures very easy to achieve. So you can, you know, pee in a cup and test for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And this is, while not brand new, it is certainly being more utilized now and the data bears that out. So I think this is an important thing to recognize that physical health parameters are actually improving somewhat. The other three areas, overall bullying is reported as down. Now, I found this interesting because the way the questions are asked informs the answer sometimes, but there was this subsection of males who report more bullying online. And I think it was specific to gaming, if I'm remembering correctly, but I'd have to go back and read. We will link to the report here. But their overall bullying seemed to be down. Overall substance use and abuse seemed to be down a little bit, trending down. And here's the one that I'm going to say is a good thing, but we're going to break down for a second, which is overall rates of risky sexual behavior are down. Now, do you want to pick up the ball with where we struggle with that description? So in some cases, they're asking about sexual intercourse in the survey, but they don't define, to our knowledge, what sexual intercourse is. So in the first place, teens don't use the term sexual intercourse. Some adults do, but teens don't. Our assumption is by sexual intercourse, they mean penis and the vagina sex, but we don't know for sure that's what they meant. They could have also meant other forms of penetrative or oral sex, or maybe they didn't. And we don't know how they defined it for the kids answering the survey. Presumably they didn't. Presumably the survey just went to the kids. And then there are sexual acts, which in the report they define as kissing, touching, and other physical intimacy. So as we point out in our book, which hopefully you will all read in October, and as we define on this podcast, sex, there are four kinds of sex. There is penis and the vagina sex, there's anal sex, oral sex, and sex with yourself, which is masturbation. And although the report shows that intercourse, which we're assuming is implied as penis and the vagina sexual intercourse is down, What we know from other studies is that anal and oral sex amongst high school students is up. So it's a little unfair to say things are down when in other areas they are up. Right. And the sex is defined as a, quote, risky behavior because of the risk of sexually transmitted infection, STI, and pregnancy. And so if you are implying heterosexual penile vaginal intercourse and not really saying anything and then assuming that the two variables that you're measuring for risk are STI and pregnancy and a safe form of sex is sex that uses barrier method contraception so that neither a pregnancy can happen nor a sexually transmitted infection. So it's really condom use, right? If that's all being implied in these questions and not overtly asked, 
And there were places where they did actually ask about types of contraception. It's important to realize they, you know, it's not that they didn't mention it, but what is risky sexual behavior then if they're not specifically calling out anal intercourse, they're not specifically calling out unprotected oral sex, and they're not specifically sort of talking about the emotional piece of all of this, right? So in sex education classes, yeah, we talk a lot about the physical. We talk a lot about the emotional because there are kids who are engaging in sexual acts and they don't want to be. Now, there was a huge chunk of data here. Oh, Cara. I know this just makes you want to cry. Almost 20% of the females in this survey reported sexual violence over the past year. And 14% reported being expressly forced to have sex. And again, Vanessa, we don't know what type of sex. We don't know what the kids were answering. We don't know. But it doesn't matter what kind of sex it was. Because if they're being forced to do something, it doesn't matter. This is the smallest number, right? Because there may be kids who are being forced to do something that they wouldn't define as sex that you and I would. And so 14% represents the lowest number. So these are... These are staggering, staggering numbers. American Indian or Alaska Native were more likely than any other groups to experience forced sex. And it's interesting, I said to Kara offline, they're not using the terms rape or sexual assault. They are using the term forced sex. And one of the things that we want to do is understand their choice of language and terminology. Why did they choose these words? What was the purpose in it? Because that's really interesting, right? We don't typically use the term forced sex in our teaching of kids or our conversations in our in our own homes. It's also important to point out that condom use and HIV and other STD testing is down. So that's a decline that is not a good decline. And that is something that they flagged in the survey as concerning. One thing I appreciate that they do in the YRBS is that they look for answers, solutions to Mm -hmm. some of the problems they identify. I found it interesting in their summary statements and in a lot of their press releases, they really focus their attention on what schools can do Mm -hmm. and what communities can do, not what individuals could do. I think that speaks to where we are. I think that speaks to the amount of pressure that parents and caregivers feel on an individual basis, like, oh, it's all on me. And so I think a lot of the solutions are being pointed more institutionally. It can get funded, it can get implemented, you can measure success there. But I do want to wrap by talking about the three big takeaways that they had from gathering all this data. And I'll start with the first, which is a recommendation to increase school connectedness. And what they mean by this is prioritize the safety and inclusion of every kid on campus. Right. And we know from the survey that males and white people feel the most connectedness to their school communities. And that sense of belonging is so critical to the well-being of adolescents. And so it may not be such a coincidence that this group of kids who are reporting lower rates in other areas are feeling the most school connectedness. And we can talk in another episode, and I would love to have someone from a school setting come on as a guest to talk about 
what's the best way to increase school connectedness? Is it to build affinity groups that identify the needs of specific people? Or is it more of a melting pot approach where everyone gets included into a much bigger, larger conversation? There are pros and cons to both. You see both happening across lots of school campuses. It's complicated in this moment because I think depending upon where you live, what the cultural fabric of your community is, what the school setup is, what the state and local laws are. I think those impact a lot of the decisions that happen on school campuses. I just want to talk about one other thing about school connectedness. Black and Hispanic students reported the highest rate of not attending school because of their concerns about safety, right? So One thing we know could help school connectedness um, across kids of different races and ethnicities is making them feel safer at school. That's right. That's right. Okay, let's go to the second big recommendation, which was, again, another school-based one, increased access to school-based care. And they included in this list health, you know, school-based clinics, mental health, and learning support. So, I found that fascinating that all three legs of that stool really come down to care and it's care of mind, care of body, all wrapped into one. This is a big ask. It's extraordinarily expensive to have health and mental health services on campus. It's extraordinarily labor intensive to meet the learning needs of every kid on campus. And yet, What this report makes very clear is that this is where kids spend all their time. And so this is where these things need to exist. And we've known this for so long, right? And they call out specifically opportunities for LGBTQ plus kids to feel, to have a kind of affinity group or some kind of support group. And they call that out very specifically in the report because all of the research we have done both for LGBTQ and also for transgender kids, that schools that feel inclusive, where they have resources, where they have opportunities to gather in safe spaces, can significantly contribute to the well-being of those students in particular. The last of their three recommendations was, again, school-based, and it was to implement quality health education. Vanessa, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I jumped up and down and almost fell over. I mean, it was like, we have taught these classes in schools across the country for so many years, and teachers are hungry, hungry for help and support in implementing quality health education that they know their students need. The exact recommendation reads that the Health education is, quote, grounded in science, medically accurate, developmentally appropriate, and culturally and LGBTQ plus inclusive. This just needs to be shouted from the rooftops. You and I are working on one type of solution to this, which we will share when the time comes, and we are very excited about it. But Across this country, every state in this country has state standards around education, what you're supposed to learn in math, what you're supposed to learn in history. You know what? There are state standards on this front as well. 
There is an expectation that health education happens not just in the home, but also at school. And this report is yelling, please, let's make that health education higher quality. There's a final piece of it, which I found really interesting, which is what they term parental monitoring. And it's basically, do you have a parent who knows where you are and what you're doing? And overwhelmingly, 86% of the kids surveyed said that they had a parent or a, a caregiver who knew where they were and what they were doing. And research tells us that that kind of accountability and awareness is really important for kids' safety and well-being. So when your child makes you feel like you are such a drag for asking for accountability, for knowing where they are, for being in touch with you, for asking for that text or that phone call, just remember when you wonder if you're doing the right thing, you are doing the right thing. It's so important for them and you are not alone. So when they tell you everyone else's parents, let them go off and do their thing. Just remember 86% of the kids surveyed said they had an adult monitoring where they were. But you have to look at that number and compare it to the number of kids who feel sad and hopeless. So there is a large overlap, even if you're present even if you know where your kid is, even if checking all those boxes, your kid may still feel persistently sad and hopeless. And it's extraordinarily important to recognize that just knowing where they are is not enough. It's, I think, probably the beginning. You know, they didn't break down, whether it was the kids whose parents knew where they were, who were the most emotionally protected. But it's just the beginning. So if you're worried about a kid in your life, if you're seeing things that are making you feel concerned, or if you're just curious, say to them, hey, this report came out and it says that 40% of high school kids are feeling persistently sad and hopeless. What do you think about that? Does that number play out for you? Is that what you're seeing amongst your friends? It doesn't have to be I just read this report. Are you persistently hopeless and sad? It can just be, what are you noticing? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Do you agree with these numbers? Do I mean, you I agree with amazing. these numbers? And yeah. if you are concerned, if you are worried that your child is one of these children, get help. Go to a guidance counselor. Go to a pediatrician. Go to someone you trust in their school or in your community, a chaplain, and get help. Don't wonder if you're imagining it or if it's just your kid or it's just, it's all going to clear up. There's no harm in seeking out help from other adults. Vanessa, I'm going to go back and read it again right now. Oh no. There's so much more. Thank you. Thank you for starting the conversation. To be continued. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.